Uh, if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15? 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11. The title of my message this morning is simply By the Grace of God. I'm going to read out of the English Standard Version. I'm sorry that I don't have slides or anything prepared for you today. But if you don't have the ESV, it might be easier just to listen as I read. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 11. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. That is the word of God. Usually when we say that the gospel is going to be preached, the presumption is that it is intended for the ears of those who have not yet confessed Jesus Christ as their Savior. Put more simply, usually we assume that the gospel is to be preached to the unbeliever. But this morning, I want to preach the gospel to those of you who would identify yourself as born-again followers of Jesus Christ And I'm going to ask you, if you count yourself as one of those, would you raise your hand high? If you consider yourself born again, a follower of Christ, saved by the grace of God, this gospel this morning is for you. Paul says very poignantly that he would remind the brothers of the gospel because it is not only the unbeliever who must hear this good news, but it is the foundational truth and the most important good news For all the world, including those who call themselves Christians to hear. Thanks to Heath Allison's Zanga page, I spent a good 30 minutes of my week watching Terry Tate, the line of the office linebacker videos on YouTube. I don't know if you've seen these things. They are absolutely hilarious. It's an NFL linebacker who's hired by an office to basically tackle people and punish them for little infringements of office etiquette. And it is one of the funniest things I've ever seen. It's put out by the Reebok Corporation. And they are so entertaining that 30 minutes just flew by as I watched. Now, there are some rougher moments of those videos, but they were really, really funny. And it seems these days that marketing has taken on a whole new force in America. In fact, I think some commercials are more eagerly awaited than motion pictures and blockbuster films. It's really interesting to see how people talk more about the commercials at the Super Bowl than about the game sometimes. And some commercials are so good, they develop a cult following. You know, I did a search last night on YouTube for Nike commercial, just that two-word phrase, and I came up with 5,730 hits for Nike commercials alone. Now, obviously, there's lots of repeats, but you can tell that these commercials are really popular And people are watching them on their free time. It used to be we want to record over the commercials. People are actually spending time putting them on the web so others can spend time watching them. That's how good they've gotten. And it's understandable because this marketing pays dividends. You know, there's a time early on in Nike's history when the marketing VP, the executive, came and said, listen, I want to raise our ad budget from something like $8 million to $34 million. And Phil Knight, the CEO, said, well, rather than yelling at him for that preposterous sum, he said, what if you're not asking for enough? And that year they spent something like a total of $48 million on marketing, which was unparalleled in the corporate world at the time. And it increased their sales very greatly. Because when they put that much money and creativity toward getting the word out, 
something amazing happened. And in a strange way, Nike became almost a, a media company and not a manufacturing company. Marketing is big business at Nike. That one company alone in 2005 spent $1.6 billion on marketing alone. $1.6 billion. Some guys are getting $90 million just for wearing their stuff. It's unbelievable. Obviously, marketing works. But it's important for companies like Nike to remember that they are not in the marketing business. It is important for Nike to remember that what they actually do for a living, for the other eight out of nine dollars that come in, is they make stuff. And they used to make really good stuff, and they need to keep making really good stuff, because if they stop making good stuff, all the marketing in the world will not save them. A company that forgets what it actually does cannot save itself through hype and spin. And I think that's a relevant message for the body of Christ today. If we ever forget what it is that makes the church move forward, what it is that makes us Christian, we will lose our mission, we will lose the basis of our unity, we will in fact lose everything that makes us distinctive and alive. Sometimes it is, it's a funny thing that the simplest, most basic and obvious truths are the easiest ones to forget. Paul says to them that he needs to remind the brothers of the gospel. And listen, he says, it is the gospel I preach to you. Now, right there, if you're in the congregation, you're going, wake me up when it's over. He already preached this one. He's not giving them a new message. The point of this particular sermon from Paul's heart, this part of the letter, is not to transmit some new information but to reinforce something that so easily leaks out of the Christian's heart. It's, it's amazing how readily we forget why it is that we are called Christians. On Good Friday service before the communion, I challenged us with that same question, didn't I? What makes a person Christian? Is it the way they live? Is it their change in lifestyle and the fact that they put aside some of the things they used to do? Like I told you before, I used to swear like a sailor and I made an art form out of it. And when I became a Christian, I put away profanity 99% in my heart once in a while. Sometimes it's a challenge. Is that what makes me a Christian? Is that I don't use four-letter words anymore? What is it? Is it because I vote for politicians who have a pro-life agenda? Is it because I have a fish on the trunk of my car, and in fact, I do not. I don't want to shame Christ because of my driving. I'm working towards getting that fish on my car. You know, we think of the gospel as Christians as the basic rudimentary message. It's often been observed that to Christians, the gospel seems like the ABCs of Christianity. But it's been rightly observed that it is not the ABCs of our faith. It is the A to Z of our faith. The gospel is not just the gateway event, that simple child's lesson that you learn and you join someone's hand and you say, Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner, come into my heart, and everything begins from there. But the gospel is also the foundation upon which we stand squarely for the rest of the Christian experience. And if the gospel ever leaks out of your heart, none of the rest of it has any power in your life. Look at what Paul says. This gospel, which he's about to preach to them, is the message which, number one, they received a past event. They received it, and once for all, they entered into something. But then it is also the message in which they stand. You see that in verse 1? It is the message that was received, and then, that's the past tense, and then in which they stand, which is the present tense. In other words, where do you stand today? How do you have confidence before God? Is it because you share your faith? Or because you teach Sunday school, where does your sense of goodness and righteousness come from? Where do you stand today? The gospel is where we stand presently. And it says it is also the message by which we are being saved. That being, I-N-G, the gerundial sense, gives us this idea that it is an ongoing and future process. That it is the same message that will continue to bring about salvation in our lives. 
both once and for all justification from, from being condemned, but also the ongoing process of becoming more like Christ. We are being saved even from our sinful selves in a progressive way and ultimately will be totally reformed by the grace of God because of this gospel. The gospel is not the the ABC first grade lesson of the faith. It is the graduate school thesis of the faith. There is nothing simple about it in the sense that it is a trivial message that can be ignored. It is simple in that even a child can understand it. But if you add anything else to Christianity that occludes the power of the gospel, you have lost Christianity altogether. There are a lot of things that will try to supplant the gospel as the heartbeat of the Christian life and the church. Some of those pressures come from outside of Christianity. Maybe you've experienced that feeling sitting in a class, let's say a a literature class or a philosophy class, and a professor who's very, very well-read corners you when you're a freshman and makes you feel like you're a backward hillbilly for believing in Jesus. You say, I believe in Jesus, and they go, how very quaint. Look, everyone, we have a Jesus freak in the room, and the pressure upon you is tremendous, and your, your cheeks are flushing, and you just feel so provincial and so backwards for feeling Like faith is real and justifiable. Sometimes the pressure to push the gospel out of our lives comes from outside the faith. Sometimes the pressure to replace the gospel comes from within ourselves, doesn't it? Sometimes we have periods of apathy where we want to say to our hearts, even the gospel doesn't get me going. Maybe you're in that place right now. Maybe you were driving to church Easter morning and you thought, well, what the heck? Let me turn on 90.1 WMBI and see what's going on. And the soft music was going and everyone was saying, on this day, Jesus was risen. And you feel like you should be feeling something. Come on, old heart. Come on. At least, at least let, me, let me picture something sad so I'll get one tear that's joyful. Like Jesus died for me and he's risen, but nothing. And you walked into this room feeling like your heart was a Tupperware container full of cold leftovers just sitting there like, don't want to eat it. Ugh. And sometimes the, the, the power, the pressure to diminish the gospel comes from inside of yourself. Sometimes it, it, it comes from within Christianity itself. I'm amazed at how many good causes we Christians embrace, sometimes to the eclipsing of the gospel itself. So that somehow we think that this cause is of first importance when Paul says very clearly in verse 3 that it is the gospel that is of first importance. You may be into some really good things like social justice. Anybody who's in college today is into social justice. And they all feel like crusaders that are one in a million. I care about the poor and the rest of you don't. Give me a break. Everybody cares about the poor today. Social justice is fashionable. I don't really know how much you're really doing in your personal life about social justice. I don't know if you're packing up to move to the ghetto and take care of your neighbors. But the point is, social justice has become a fashionable thing to embrace. It is also a very godly thing to embrace. But it's amazing how people in the social justice movement almost seem to to say, without quite saying it, that if we could just get the poor people less poor, There will be paradise on earth. As if to say somehow the fact that Jesus once hung on a cross and walked out of an empty tomb is of secondary importance to getting corrupt politicians out of there and bringing corporations back into the neighborhood and giving people jobs and all of that. I'm not trying to disparage the social justice movement, but what I'm saying is no matter how passionate you are about something, nothing under the banner of Christ must supplant the gospel as the heartbeat of this faith. Do you understand? And if you're alive in Christ, that is one of those moments where we can say together, Amen. Amen. Come on. Find your inner Baptist. Give me an Amen. Just Amen. That's right. That's right. Lord. And that's why Paul says, It is this gospel to which we must hold fast. Because it's so easy to lose your grip on it because it's boring and it's simple and it's childish. And there are other things that get our hearts beating. And he says, listen, I understand that. It's like trying to hang on to the banister of a boat that's made out of metal in a a sea storm. And you're barely holding on. But he says, you must hold fast where your knuckles are turning white. Because if you let go of this, you lose everything. 
If you lose the gospel, you lose what makes Christianity Christianity and it becomes just another moral system. And we get trapped in just taking care of the poor and trying to become better human beings. And where's the difference in that from Judaism and Islam and Buddhism and Hinduism and every other faith system and every other ism under the sun? The only distinctive that makes us Christians is that we believe Jesus bore our sins and he conquered sin and death and he rose from the grave. That is what makes us Christians and that is what imbues power to every other good thing we do as a church. Amen? And so Paul goes on in verse 3 to say, listen, it is the A to Z of the Christian faith But let me break out the the simplicity of the gospel message, the ABCs of the gospel. And it is simply this. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And let me pause there to make a point. Paul says earlier that the gospel is a message that the Corinthians had received from him. But he says it is also the same message which I received from others. This is the way the gospel has always been propagated. It is always a message that is received as it is spoken by one person to another and thereby received. The gospel isn't a magical thought that just appears in someone's mind spontaneously because the gospel is so unusual in its construction and so counterintuitive that no fallen human mind could conceive of the idea, the plan on its own. It has always been a message that must be received from externally and brought into our lives. That is why mission and evangelism is always going to be important because people don't just walk around one day and going, oh man, you know what, come to think of it, what if God did this? What if he sent his only son to hang on a cross for my sin? That does not happen. Every one of us who believed the gospel heard it somewhere presented. That's a simple reminder to us that people don't just get saved by osmosis. It is a message That must be given and received and given and received for there is no other way by which men can be saved but that they believe in the name of Jesus Christ. And how will they know unless someone preaches? How will they hear it unless somebody goes and speaks? You remember that Romans 10? The simplicity of the gospel message. Let me just break it down quickly for you. It's that Christ died for our sins. I was listening to Stephen Wright do a little performance on the radio the other day. You know who Stephen Wright is? He does a deadpan, one-liner observation comedy. And he goes, the other day I saw a guy hitchhiking. He was holding up a sign that says heaven, so I hit him. And his closer was, I think he got there because he looked like a pretty nice guy. Now, that's a pretty morose joke. But what I got from it is Stephen Wright perfectly summarizes the the knowledge, the wisdom on the street about how all of this works. That the fair thing is that if you're a fairly decent guy, if you're a good egg, God will save you and you'll get to heaven. And so Stephen Wright's logic is he looks he looks like a decent guy. If I kill him, I guess he'll go to heaven. Ask any number of people randomly on the street. How does somebody get to heaven? We're asking even a more pointed question. What makes a person a Christian? It's amazing how misunderstood the gospel is, how misunderstood Christianity is. Do you know what most people, if they say, give me a synonym for Christian, do you know what people will give you most often? One of two words, good or nice. To be Christian, like what if, what if I said to you, well, you know, that's a very Christian thing you did. What would that mean to you? And in our vernacular, it has become synonymous with nice or good. Wow, that was a really Christian thing you did for me, holding the door open. Thank you. You're a good Christian person. That's the way most people in the world think about the gospel. That God is fair just like us, and so he's not going to be mean to people. And so if you're pretty decent, you're going to get in. And if you're a real jerk, guys like Hitler and Mussolini and Jeffrey Dahmer and the really bad ones, they don't get to go. Because they disqualify themselves. But most people, they're pretty decent. If you put a scale up and you put their bad stuff and their good stuff, if your good stuff outweighs the bad, guess what? Welcome to the party. Why is it that Christianity is so misunderstood? 
Could it be because Christians ourselves, we're the ones guilty of misrepresenting what it means to be Christian? When we get out there, is it the gospel, the grace by which we are saved that we wear on our sleeve and put out on our placards? Or is it, look at us, we don't smoke like you guys do. Ew, we're not going to go see that movie. We're going to boycott that company. We're going to do this and we're going to do that and we're not going to hire this and we're going to hire that. Is that what we put out there as a first importance? I'm not suggesting those other things are not necessary at times. But what is it that precedes us in our reputation? So that when people encounter us, they say, this is what it means to be Christian. It means you could be a total heel. But Jesus Christ forgave you and you believe that. And that was all that it took. If the world is confused about the gospel, it is partly our fault, isn't it? Because we lead others to believe that our niceness and our goodness is what makes us Christian. Don't get me wrong. Don't get out there and be a mean jerk. Right? Niceness and goodness is good. It's, it's, it's fine. But if it's carried out in the absence of the spoken gospel, how will people ever connect the dots? Jesus died for our sins. And you'd have to be insane to argue with me that this world needs saving. Watch the news sometime. Look at what we are capable of doing as human beings to one another. I worked in a surgical ward and watched a man come in with a miniature hatchet buried in his skull. We said, what happened? Was it a lumberjacking accident? He said, no, him and his best friend were drinking beers and playing pool. They argued over a shot and his friend took out his belt hatchet, which first of all, no one should ever be wearing. And he just clunked his friend right in the head and buried the hatchet right in his skull. 16 hours of surgery later, the man barely made it out with his life. I think, what kind of world do we live in? Mothers are drowning their own babies in the family bathtub. Are you going to really argue with me that this world does not need a savior? It's a mess. This world is a total mess. And you and I have paid our fair share into that account, haven't we? Would you kindly stand if you're the only person in this room who has not contributed to the messed up situation in this world? From birth, you have done nothing but good and kindness to others. Thought happy thoughts. Butterflies swim around your head all day long because they're drawn to the halo of light. Anyone? See, people want to debate all the time. Hey, I never asked Jesus to die for me. If you had half, of, half the light of wisdom and truth, you would beg him to die for you. If you understood the stakes and realized he's the only one who can pay that price. Part of justice, because God is a just God, part of justice is so common sense. Justice demands that somebody must pay. Somebody must pay. If you kill my family because you're a drunk driver and you rammed into my minivan and you killed my family, somebody must pay. This is justice. The entire legal system is built on that. God is just. But who can pay for the fallen world we live in? If I say to God, Lord, I volunteer, I'll die for the sins of the world. He'll say, nice try, just like my kid going, I'll help pay for the house. Thanks for the sentiment. But you don't have enough. You could die a million times and it wouldn't meet the price tag. God knew that his son is the only one whose sacrifice would be expensive enough to pay the price for justice. Somebody must pay and the only one who could actually did. Do you understand what a phenomenal thing that is? I was just thinking about a scenario in my life that might play out this way. Help me understand. You know, I make a fair living. This church treats our family very well. But what if I got into a situation where I got into really serious financial trouble and I was in need of $100,000 within 24 hours or else I would die? Sounds like Oral Roberts, doesn't it? <laughs> what if I told you, if I don't get 100000 in cash, I'm going to die? And the truth is, if that really happened... I am really out of luck because I don't have $100,000. I could sell both my kidneys. It wouldn't be worth that. I, and so I'm completely at the mercy of others because I simply don't have enough. But what if there's someone in our church? And I think there are some of you who actually do. You just got 100000 sitting around in a savings account. And you go, just wait until that boat comes on sale or something. I don't know. And what if because you could, you had mercy on my situation. And you did for me freely what in a million years i couldn't have done for myself do you understand the feeling of gratitude that would swell over you if you understood that had you understood the truth you would beg jesus to die for you 
But listen, if you watch the Passion of the Christ, you know that if Jesus bore the pain and torture of the crucifixion, that alone would have been an act of highest nobility. But the truth is anyone can die for others. Human history is full of stories like that. I remember reading this story in the Great Flood. Remember, there was a, not the Great Flood in the Bible, but this Great Flood in the southern part of the United States. I once told you this story in a sermon, and it still chokes me up. They've, they found the waters rising, and a baby seemed to be floating by itself in the water, and they snatched it out from a rescue boat, and what they saw was the hand of a mother drowned, holding that baby up above the surface with her last breath. Human history is full of stories like this, of one human being Yielding their life voluntarily for the sake of others that they might live. How many men have jumped on hand grenades so that their friends in their unit would survive? And when I read stories like that, I get chills because it is one of the greatest displays of love that you can imagine. Indeed, Jesus taught that in in the, the Gospel of John. He said that no greater love has anyone than this, John 15, 13. That they lay down their life for their friends. It was on the cross that the deep, deep love of God was put on display. But the cross in itself was not enough. Because it was when the resurrection took place that the power of God was also put on display. That his justice was satisfied. The sacrifice was accepted. The contract was fulfilled. And the payment was paid in full. That was the sign that now this terrible situation that had gone very awry was now made straight because Jesus rose from death. And in that rising again, demonstrated that God has power over sin and death once and for all. That there is nothing in this world of ours that can keep away the hand of God's mercy. He is powerful to keep his word and he is powerful to save us. Anyone can die. But only Jesus Christ said he'd come back and did it. That's an amazing historical feat. What that tells us simply is this. This is the heart of the gospel message. And if you've been sleeping to now, pay attention to this one thing. Because you must have this when you go home. The heart of the gospel is that your standing with God has nothing to do with what you do or fail to do. It has everything to do with what Jesus has already done. That is the only thing that determines your standing with God. Every other thing simply determines your character and the degree to which you can bring glory to God as you resemble Him. But the only thing that determines where you stand with God relationally is what He has already once and for all time done for you on the cross. Don't ever confuse the justification of the cross with the ongoing process of sanctification by which God makes us more like himself. Only faith in what Jesus did historically saves human beings. Nothing good that you ever do will make you more righteous or shinier in God's eyes. Nothing good you ever do will make make him love you even a little bit more. And nothing bad that you do, no matter how bad, will make you less righteous in the final analysis in the eyes of God. That was a concept so difficult for me to understand. You mean I can murder my friend and God still calls me perfectly righteous in his sight? And the Bible screams back, yes, that is why it's called good news. That the stone, that heavy millstone of guilt is no longer around my neck. It was born once and for all time on the cross of Jesus Christ so that when God looks at me, he doesn't see me, but he sees the finished work of Jesus Christ that covers me. That is what he sees. It doesn't mean he can ignore my sin or is not grieved by it. But ultimately, my standing with him is because of what Jesus did. Do you see that? That means when you lead your thousandth convert to the Lord, You don't shine any brighter for Jesus in terms of his love and acceptance of you. If you give up your vacation time to minister to orphans, you're not going to get any more points towards acceptance and love from God. Conversely, when you wake up in a stranger's bed, your heart heavy and filled with regret and shame. You are no less lovable to God 
No less acceptable to God if you are in Christ than before you had done that terrible thing. Because his love for you and his acceptance of you is entirely based on what Jesus Christ has done. And if you will freely accept and and believe and trust in that work alone to make you righteous, you will be saved. I want to pause here and play a song for you to give you a little time to process, and then I'll come and quickly wrap up the sermon with an opportunity for you to respond. Would you guys play that song? And you can find the lyrics. It's a song called What If by an artist named Jason Lavick. I mean, Jaden Lavick. And I love this song because it, it speaks of the tension that grabs our hearts sometimes about the way the gospel works. It illustrates how we easily forget, but then it brings us back to the center. Would you guys play that song? What if I climbed the mountain? What if I swam to that shore? What if every battle was victorious? Then would you love me more? Would you love me more? What if I were everyone's first choice? What if I went farther than before? What if I stood high above the rest? Then would you love me? you love me listen to a lot of music on the radio, but this week that song so ministered to me at an important time. I listened to it on Good Friday, and I've got to confess to you that I was having a real hard time this Passion Week. It's one of the toughest Passion Weeks I can remember in a long time. And all week I was trying to CPR my heart for Christ. Stupid heart, feel something, please. And then I heard that song, and we went to Good Friday service And when Christian and the team led us in the singing of It Is Well, My Soul, that stanza where it says, My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part but the whole, was nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. It's an awesome thought, and the dam burst, and I realized what the gospel is about. 
Because of that act, I'm free. I've done so many wretched things since I was saved. But because of that one act, my standing with God is rock solid and secure. And no one can take that away from me. Not even myself and my foolish heart. This is the gospel. And this is powerful to change lives. Paul finishes this passage making a great deal of all the people that the risen Christ appeared to. Do you know what he's doing there? He's rooting the gospel in a historical event. He's saying to us that Christianity is not another set of ideas and values. It isn't just a belief system. Christianity is built on the gospel, and the gospel is an event, not just a process or an idea. It is an event. God didn't just invent a new protocol for redeeming lost souls. He came to earth himself. And he wore flesh and blood and bone. And for 33 years, he endured life as a human being. And he endured the cruelest punishment. He actually went to a real wooden cross. And he died on that cross and was put into a cold, sterile tomb. And he rose again from it. The gospel happened. The gospel is not an idea or something we reduce to some laws on a track. It is something that occurred on this planet in time and space because God so loved this world. And there was a day when my sin, not in part but the whole, and yours as well, was nailed to a cross and you bore it no more. That is the gospel. It happened. It's real. And it changes lives. I think there's a second reason, quickly I'll tell you, that Paul says about all those people that were seeing the risen Christ because it explains why the church exists today. Think about the condition these people must have been in. They've had the roughest weekend of their lives. They've been given Jesus their followership for three years. He had given them such high hopes and they'd watched him die. and They'd buried him in that tomb. Watched the Roman guards seal it with the Roman seal and there was no way that he was coming out. Where do you go from there? What do you do? How do you go back to being a fisherman after walking with Jesus for three years and watching the dead raised and demons come out? How do you go back to baiting hooks and throwing nets? As they were moping around, crestfallen, defeated, feeling totally lost, the risen Christ appears to them. Do you catch that? The risen Christ appears, and the appearance of Jesus, risen from the dead, redeeming them in power and glory, Changes everything for them. The risen Christ is God's sign. That for the most crestfallen. The most defeated. The most lost. There is hope and a way home. That is why these fallen people. Completely broken. Found their way again. And they built the church. And vast majority of them. Paid for the foundation of the church. With their own blood. In the fashion of Christ. How, does people, how do people do that? How do they give up their lives? Because they see something that engenders such hope and redefines what reality is. And that is the risen Christ. I don't know where life finds you today, but maybe by the world standards, you're happy and comfortable, but inside you're fighting this encroaching darkness that says there's nothing worth going on for. I keep achieving new heights and they bore me so quickly. It's like there's nothing left to look forward to. Maybe for you, the reason Sundays can be so depressing is because it signals the end of the weekend and the start of another week. God says in the risen Christ's presence, you find real hope for living, a reason to live. Paul concludes with his own testimony. And I won't get into that other than to say that he says it is by the grace of God that I am what I am. Isn't that a powerful statement? Now he knew how committed he was to the destruction of the church and to living as the enemy of God. I'm the same way, probably to a lesser degree. I didn't kill anybody because they were a Christian, but I lived for many years staunchly as the enemy of God. I have so much to be ashamed of. And every Sunday I come up here to preach, 
there's a, a little thought, a little voice on my shoulder that says, if they ever knew what you're really like, they'd leave the church. They could see what their pastor was like as a high schooler, as a college student. My goodness, they'd run for the hills. It keeps me humble. It ought to keep you humble to know who you really are, who you once were, who you still can be. And to stay with Paul if you're a Christian, that the only reason I feel differently about myself today is not because I've done lots of good stuff between then and now, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. That's a powerful statement. It is to be the only truly Christian testimony. By the grace of God, I am what I am today. I'm going to give you a chance to respond. And, I, you know, we don't do this that often, so I don't want you to miss this chance. There's two groups of people I'm hoping will respond to this simple message. The first group are those who already profess Christ as Savior, but you feel like you're stuck. Like you're a Christian by culture, but you're not a Christian because the power of the gospel is still beating in you. You find that your heart quickens most for things of the flesh and of the world, and the name of Jesus and the idea that he has risen does nothing for you. You feel like you're so far from home. Or maybe you're stuck in this broken cycle where you're like a hamster on that treadmill, running in that wheel so fast, so hard, so that God will love you more. And you think, if I do good things, will he love me more? If I do bad things, will he love me less? Is God in heaven like my parents on earth? If that's where you are, I'm going to invite you, even as a Christian, a professing Christian, to respond to the gospel by finding your new freedom And a new lease on life by trusting that because of what Jesus did, you also this morning can begin walking in newness of life. Amen? That's the first group I'm going to ask to respond. And the second group that I'm going to ask to respond are those who have never trusted in anything but themselves. But this morning you heard a clear presentation of the way that God has planned to rescue us. And there can be no arguing that we need rescue. If you're willing to trust in Jesus Christ alone, you don't have to come in a suit next Sunday to church. You don't have to quit smoking this afternoon. You don't have to stop going to the riverboats right away. You don't have to do this or that. All you need to do is tell Jesus that there's only one thing that you count as your righteousness, and that is what he did on the cross. If you can do that, You can be born again today. You can have eternal life today. And who couldn't use a second act, a new lease on life? Shame on us if we as a church ever made people think that it's what we do that makes us Christians. It is only this gospel and it is what we will respond to this morning. I'm going to ask you as the praise team comes up, I'm going to ask you to bow in prayer with me. And after examining your heart, Don't make a decision from within your own heart. Listen for what the Lord is calling out to you. Because if he invites you to respond, I'm going to ask you to make a response to the Lord. And then we're going to pray for you. Okay? So I'm going to ask everyone just to keep their eyes closed. And let's just pray to God. Let's make this a personal time of prayer and renewal. Easter Sunday is a fitting day for times of renewal. Continue to listen for the voice of God. There's a wonderful song called Come Home Running. And if you hear the song sung from the voice of God, it is his loving invitation 
that you don't have to wander around outside far from home. But because of what Jesus freely did for you, you can come home. And you don't have to ease into that reunion. You can come home running. For this very day, no matter where you've gone and what you've done, home is found where the grace of God is received in your heart. Home is where God says to you, all is forgiven because Jesus paid it all. Stop trying so hard by yourself and stop being lost. Come home running. I'm going to ask our praise team to sing that song softly as we continue our time of response and prayer. And then I'll give you an opportunity to make a physical gesture of response to the Lord. So let's continue with our eyes closed to receive the ministry of this song and pray. Oh, heart of mine, why must you stray from one so fair? You run away. And one more time, you have to pay the heaviness heart of mine come back home you've been too long out on your own he's been there all along watching for you down the road so come home His arms are open wide His name is Jesus He understands He is the answer You are looking for So come home running Just as you are moment for those of you who as you're praying you just sense that you've never really trusted in Jesus as your savior but you know in your heart you need to don't wait for the next time that this invitation comes this is your hour and this is your opportunity to say yes to the loving invitation of God there's no shame in it There's only glory and newness of life and freedom. If that's where your heart is right now, I'm going to ask you to do something courageous. With everyone else's eyes closed, I'm going to ask you to stand up where you're sitting to indicate that this is something that you want to receive. I'll just give you a couple seconds. And if you feel like the Lord is calling you to come home, you can be welcomed this very moment. I'm going to ask a second group of people to rise to their feet. And this is a tough one because sometimes we Christians are so self-conscious. We wonder if I stand at an invitation like this, will people assume that I've fallen away or backslidden? But that has really nothing to do with it. If somehow you find that your life has become centered on something other than the gospel, If you find your confidence in any other thing than that Jesus loved you enough to save you, today you need to stand and say to the Lord that by your help, I will build my life again on the grace of Jesus Christ. I will stop fighting to get more love from God and I will receive the love that is already flowing. 
I will remember that one day on that cross, my sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, O my soul. That's my testimony. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. Help me, Lord, not to live on any other foundation. If that is your heart, I'm going to ask you to rise to your feet. I want to just pray for you in that newness of conviction to build your life around the gospel and only the gospel for your confidence. Praise God. Thank you. Amen. Thank you. Praise God. remain standing. I'm going to pray for all of you. God, I thank you for these broken and humbled hearts that have stood. Because their hearts have heard what you're saying this morning. That their confidence and their righteousness is not something that they have made for themselves. But you one day paid it all on a cross and they bear it no more. Help them now to be released into a new life of total freedom. Not slaving away to be more loved by God. Or running for fear that to do wrong would mean to be loved less. Make them now eternally secure in the acceptance and the unconditional, unwavering love of their God. So that with great joy, They can pursue a life of becoming more like you. Let them now walk in freedom. Never again fighting to earn what they can only receive by grace. Let the resurrection power of our Lord Jesus Christ now lift their hearts to whole new heights of joy and gratitude at the feet of Christ who alone paid a great price for them and called them home. I invite you to return to your seats. And I pray, Lord, for our whole congregation. Lord, never let us stray too far from home. And when we do, reach after us with the gospel that we can come home running. In the name of Jesus.